Welcome to Weird Studies, an arts and philosophy podcast with hosts Phil Ford and J.F. Martell. For more episodes or to support the podcast, go to weirdstudies.com. Hi, welcome to Weird Studies. This is Phil Ford. JF and I try to share out podcast jobs equally, so we take turns on doing these intros. And this week, it's my turn to do one, which is funny in as much as I know about one hundredth of what JF knows about Carl Jung, the subject of today's show. But maybe it's just as well that I drew the assignment this week. Maybe there's something to be said for having a low-res mental picture of a complex thinker. It's like being able to stand back from a big painting to see if the frame is crooked. However, early in this episode, J.F. and I consider what gets lost when we go too much on received opinion with Jung. Jung has a reputation of being the weirder version of Sigmund Freud, or the cooler version, depending on your point of view. Freud writes of the individual unconscious. Jung writes about the collective unconscious. Okay, fine, that's true to a certain point. But what if we think of Jung a few other ways? What if we think of him as a 20th century paracelsus, a Swiss physician and student of nature with one foot in science and the other in the occult, and a major figure in the Western esoteric tradition? Or what if we think of him as the uncanny repetition of the archaic in the modern, a shaman reincarnated in a starched European collar? Or, instead of Freud, perhaps he might be more profitably compared to William James, a pluralistic philosopher whose starting point is psychology. Jung's essay on the relation of analytical psychology to poetry, despite its dreary title, is a fascinating introduction to Jung's thought. It's a rich essay, so rich that when J.F. and I had been recording for about an hour, we realized that we had spent the whole time setting up the possible answers to the question I have framed in this introduction— What kind of thinker does Jung represent, and what is the nature of his accomplishment? So what we've decided to do is to record a sequel to the discussion that follows. In this episode, we go meta and talk about how to talk about art, or how not to. In the next episode, we will ask what kind of entity an artwork is in itself. And here we begin to hint at Jung's answer, that the artwork is something like a daemon, an autonomous psychic entity within the psyche of the artist. Stay tuned two weeks from now for the thrilling conclusion. If you're a regular listener of Weird Studies, you would think that right about now I should be making a pitch for our Patreon. And you would be right. Let me tell you about something going on there right now. When the quarantine began and all university classes migrated online, I decided to create a series of solo podcasts for the undergraduate music history course I teach. M402 represent! Shout out to Chelsea, Masha, Meredith, Molly, Nicolette, and Sarah, the greatest AI squad of modern times. Anyhow, some of these solo podcasts turned out pretty well, though I say it myself, and I have been releasing them to our Reader's Tier and Writer's Tier patrons. In the last music history podcast of the semester, J.F. joined me and we had a dialogue on what we mean when we say art. You might think of it as a deep dive into one of the many issues raised by our recent reading of Jung. 
Anyway, we're releasing that one for our patrons next week, in the gap week between this podcast you're listening to right now and its sequel. Just one example of the kind of primo content you'll find on the Weird Studies Patreon. Okay, on with the show. I guess before we get into Jung's essay on the, it's what a wonderful title, on the relation of analytical psychology to poetry. It's yeah. La- the lamest title ever. It's so dry. Yeah. It took me a while when I first got this book to finally read that one because it just looked so boring. The title made it look so lame. Yeah. But it's actually really, really, it's an exciting essay. I agree. It's exciting to read it. His writing style is not, uh, it's not bad, certainly, but you know, it's it's not dramatic. No. uh, Which I appreciate. I don't think you could take him as seriously somehow if he was promising to unveil the eldritch mysteries or whatever, if if his uh, rhetoric kind of over-promised in the way that occult rhetoric always kind of does implicitly. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's an interesting concept. Maybe one day we should look at a book by Joshua Gunn called Occult Rhetoric. Yeah. I've heard of that book. Yeah, it's an interesting book. It's about how occult rhetoric is obviously something that belongs to the occult, but it also belongs to like the realm of cultural theory, critical theory. Um, It's a register of writing that people engage in. This is me talking. This is not Josh Gunn talking, but uh, or Joshua Gunn. We're not on. We're not close, (laughs) Professor Gunn and I. Um, (laughs) But. uh, I don't know why I just suddenly decided to call him by a Josh. <laughs> Josh. You know, my buddy Josh. Uh, that's really funny. Um, but uh, to me, you know, occult rhetoric does that thing where it's not just about what the words mean. In fact, often the words are gibberish or close to it, but it's the performative dimension Mm -hmm. of that rhetoric, where it's sort of saying to you, I am revealing the eldritch mysteries of the universe. It's sort of saying like, watch me now as I part the veil. Yeah. And And, Freud was king at that. Yeah. Uh, Interpretation of dreams. It's like, I have found, you know, it, it reads like the revelation, right? Yeah. Yeah. And also it's rhetoric that puts you in the mood for revelation. That seems yes. to be important. That by its very opacities and obscurities, it kind of leaves you open for mystery. Absolutely. And and, and it's in that sense that I think Freud is such a great weird writer because yeah. he instills a weird mood and he does yeah. it very well. And you come out of reading something like The Uncanny or Totem and Taboo going, I have peeled the veil. I've, you know, yeah. I've looked beyond. <laughs> I have seen. And uh, Jung yeah, doesn't do true. that. Jung does, yeah. Jung does have a performative uh, dimension, but it's exactly the opposite. Yeah. He, he's parting the veil. He's showing you, but he's making it look like deadpan science. And that yeah. was a strategy that he used, as Kingsley explores in his book, Catafalque, but all, others have before. K- Kingsley wouldn't like hearing that, but others have said, Hillman said so much, I think, in certain contexts. Oh, is Kingsley that, definitely wouldn't want to hear that. No, but... I mean, the thing about Catafalque is it's so full of anger. Yes. 
It's an angry it, book. It's, uh, there's this movie called, I think it's called Mystery Men, which I never saw, but it's about a bunch of misfit superheroes. And I think- Yeah, with Tom Waits. Well, you see, I didn't watch it, so I don't really know, but I remember watching a clip with Ben Stiller, who plays a character, I think it's called Mr. Furious, and his superpower is he just gets really, really angry. Yeah. That's always what I think of when I'm reading Catafalque. Yeah. <laughs> and this is not to, uh, I know this sounds awful, but there's a lot of good stuff in that book. I mean, I have- uh, I It's have an much, eye-opening book, yeah. I have a lot of respect for Kingsley, especially his work as a classicist and his work on Plato and and the, the pre-Socratics. And it reawakened my interest in reading Jung. I'll tell you right now, this is the first time that I've, I've uh, that we've, I mean- for one thing, it's the first time that we've talked about Jung on the show, which when you think about it is odd that we've made it to, what are we up to, 73 episodes? Mm-hmm. And this is the first time we do Jung. Right. Even though there's hardly a, an episode where we don't at least name check him. Yeah, or at least bring up something like the archetype or you know, right. some, something he coined, something he brought into the conversation for sure. Well, and that kind of speaks to something about Jung, which is he has become somewhat like Freud, at least in the weirdest sphere. He's a little the way Marx is for, I don't know, many intellectuals, certainly, you know, people working in the humanities and academia, where there's a lot of people who talk a lot of Marxist stuff, but have never actually read Marx. Mm. And I'm not saying that to shit on them, because frankly, at this point, I'm not sure you really need to read Marx. Like those ideas have been metabolized for well over a century and a half. And by now we kind of, we have a kind of a a bone deep understanding of what basically Marx was on about without having to read it. Is it what Marx was on about? That's that's the thing. Often the metabolized version, if you go back to the originals, starts to fritter away and kind of not look as solid as it did. But I I see your point. I'm not a Marxist, so I don't feel guilty at all about not reading Marx because fuck that. But but Jung is one of those people, it's very easy to just kind of coast on received knowledge Mm -hmm. and sort of sound like you know what you're talking about, which isn't to say I've never read Jung. Sure, I have. But uh, reading this essay... There are some aspects of his thinking that, you know, getting to the pure uncut stuff, um, Mm -hmm. it's just deeper and richer than I have given him credit for. And part of this also is, you know, Theodor Adorno, the uh, dour German neo-Marxist philosopher, has an essay called Bach Defended Against His Devotees, which is a terrific title. and. It's a piece he wrote taking aim at the early music movement as it was just beginning to get going in the 1950s, which seeks a historical reconstruction of the style of performance that people in olden times might have expected of their compositions. Adorno thought this was bullshit, regressive, you know, to try and recreate the past in this way. Um, But I'm only mentioning the essay because of the title. Bach is a kind of person everybody wants to claim for their own agenda. And Mm -hmm. so his point was that some of the people who are most ardently pro-Bach are actually doing Bach the greatest disservice. And I feel like something similar might be going on with Jung. I mean, that's that's Kingsley's whole thing and Catafalque. I mean, the title of that book might be Jung Defended Against His Devotees, but I kind of see why he felt he needed to write it because I've always been a little put off by Jung, partly because I've always been a little put off by Jungians, people who just won't shut the fuck up about uh, what the master hath taught us. It just sounds a little religious to me and it sounds a bit, you know, the way it's presented is 
systematized, and I don't like systematizers. I don't like reductive approaches. Um, but Jung isn't like that at all. No, he's not. I'll just read a quick passage as an example of this. In this essay, at one moment, he's talking about the collective unconscious, and he writes something that you wouldn't have thought he'd write if you just listened to Jungians. He writes, the collective unconscious is not to be thought of as a self-subsistent entity. It is no more than a potentiality handed down to us from primordial times in the specific form of mnemonic images are inherited in the anatomical structure of the brain. There are no inborn ideas, but there are inborn possibilities of ideas that set bounds to even the boldest fantasy and keep our fantasy activity within certain categories. So, a priori ideas, using the term in the Kantian sense. So, what he's saying is that Whereas you listen to many unions, you have the feeling that we all have like a freaking collection of tarot cards in our head. Like, oh, there's the magician. There's the old man. There's the anima. And that these things kind of exist as entities inside. Whereas what he's saying is that these archetypes are manifestations of patterns that are fixed by our evolutionary path and the way the organism is shaped over time. That doesn't mean that he's a materialist, though. There's a lot more to Jung than that. But that's one thing, is that he doesn't want to reify the, our collective unconscious. The collective unconscious for him is a heuristic tool for talking about ideas that are universal because they come up again and again. And it's not so much that the old man, like when you conceive a child, there's a little old man in your head and a little wise old man in your, in your wife's head, and they get together and make a little wise old man in your child's head. It's not like that. It's that the way that humans are shaped will produce similar fantasies over and over again because the human organism perceives and experiences the world in a specific way. And that includes instincts and those instincts have forms and have ways of manifesting to us. And the imagination is part of the organism. And so that repeats certain patterns. And it's a very different way of looking at it from what you would, you know, hear from like a kind of regular everyday union who would say things like, these archetypes are somehow more real than we are. And, you know, this kind of like uh, pseudo platonic way of looking at it. So that's just one example and a short passage that kind of short circuits the way we usually think of Jung. Oh, I want to cop to something. You can tell me how far off you think I am. But when I was reading this, I was thinking like something that I've said on this show, I'm thinking I might be a little full of shit. I was saying once, at least once, that the perennial conversation people have in kind of pagan magical circles is on the ontological status of the gods and various non-material entities. And the question roughly breaks down to, are they self-existent entities that, you know, are doing their thing, whether or not you're around, mm -hmm. or are they parts of your own mind? And one thing I've said is that I thought that Jung was a very important figure in Western esotericism because he seems to me to be, I, and I actually stand by this, he seems to me to be the figure who makes the 20th century and 21st century safe for esotericism. You know, Crowley, as much of a genius as I think he was, of course, a flawed genius, um, nevertheless, there is always a character of eldritch spookiness to Crowley stuff. There's none of that in Jung. It's reassuring. It's scientific. As we said at the beginning, he's not indulging in the mode of occult rhetoric. It's the mode of scientific rhetoric. Yet at the same time, he is dealing with ideas that are 
just inherent to the Western esoteric tradition. And he's talking about them in ways that make them seem very kind of approachable, uh, accessible, whereas they don't feel that way so much in Crowley's writing. Now, the thing about that is I was saying, well, I think that the way he managed to make ideas from the Western esoteric tradition conformable to modernity is by affecting that shift from the idea that gods are self-existent entities to the idea that gods are parts of our own psyche, because then that's moving gods and entities mm -hmm. a little bit more into the imminent frame. We can find more of a place for gods and entities if we say we're right. not self-existent, but they live in us, right? But reading this essay made me think that maybe that was a an oversimplification, and I wondered what you thought. Yeah, I think I think you're absolutely right in the one sense, but there's a, an important distinction that it took me years, I think, to discern, and I finally saw it reading and thinking about the Red Book. This is something Jung often repeats in his work. He'll often say, I'm going to be talking about God, like, for example, in his famous uh, book, Answer to Job. I'm going to be talking about God. I'm going to be talking about God in the language of psychology. You may think that what I'm saying is that God is a psychological construct or an aspect of our mind. And insofar as we're talking psychology, you'd be right to think that. But that has nothing to do with God. That only has to do with the image we have of God and how that image has evolved. In other words, for Jung, the human, as Kingsley points out in this book, the human anthropos is itself an archetype. The human being is an archetype. Babies recognize faces and there's all kinds of neurological explanations for that, but it's, it, it adds up to everyone's born with an idea of the human, of what a human being is. So that doesn't mean humans don't exist or humans are a construct of our mind. So he would say the same thing about gods. In the Red Book and in Seven Sermons to the Dead and in Memories, Dreams, Reflections, his autobiography, where he talks about his anomalous experiences, Jung is very clear that he actually believes in literal self-existent daimons and entities and spirits. Yeah. He so, didn't think of Philemon as being like some kind of allegory. No, he didn't. His um, psychology in its extreme form, removes the locus from which you could say, this is an aspect of my mind or this is a self-existent entity. There's no, there's no center on which to make that distinction anymore. Um, we're always in psyche. So in a sense, what Jung is saying is everything is real. There's nothing is just something. This is the key thing. And this is why, and I struggled with Jung over time. You know, I discovered Jung too young, probably too young when I was into Jung. <laughs> um, I was like 14. I read Joseph Campbell's uh, Power of Myth. You know, Bill Moyer's famous in yeah. Joseph Campbell's made a best-selling book. Well, amazing book. And what a time to read that when I was in like grade nine or 10. It just blew my mind right open. And Jung comes up a lot in that book because Campbell is for all intents and purposes a Jungian, although I think he contributed to the cartoon Jung that people um, mistake for the real thing sometimes. So, and I started reading Jung and I loved it. It filled a hole, a gap in my model of the world, and it explained everything. And it dovetailed or like it resonated with Plato, who I was really into as a kid, um, reading The Republic and trying to make sense of it and just thinking of it in terms of the forms and the archetypes. It all kind of made sense. And then went to university and started reading the guys that Paul Ricard called the masters of suspicion. So Freud, Marx, and Nietzsche. These three guys, they're 
diametrically opposed to Jung in their approach, in their axioms. And you can see this in how the relationship between Jung and Freud played out. What Freud, Marx, and Nietzsche do is that they look at the world as we know it, the world we know, the society, you know, the way we conceive of society, the way we think about nature, the way we think about space and time. And they see all that as uh, not just an illusion, but a lie. Mm. The truth is actually the opposite. So, for instance, in Nietzsche, charity is cruelty or judgment masked. In Marx, the bourgeoisie with its ideals of democracy and freedom is actually a system to justify a regime of oppression, right? Like, that's essentially what these guys are doing. They suspect the world. Everything is held suspect. Right. And everything must be read as a symptom to indicate an underlying disease that is latent and unacknowledged yeah. in society. And that bleeds into, that moves into critical theory and postmodernism yep. and that kind of attitude of suspicion. Foucault being another person who everybody kind of speaks in a Foucauldian idiom without necessarily having read him. Like nowadays, yeah. fucking teen Vogue is in a recognizably Foucauldian register. Well, I think the chief editor is a like hardcore theory person. There you go. Yeah. So, but and, and again, I want to emphasize that if you read the originals... If you read Marx, if you read Freud, if you read Nietzsche, you'll find that it's much more subtle than the received version that people instrumentalize and weaponize yeah. in academia yeah. or in society. But nevertheless, they took as an axiom an, a starting assumption that reality was opposed to appearance. That the yes. reality of things, right. that's my take on it anyways, the, rea the reality of things is the opposite of how things appear. Will to power, castration, you know, your relationship, you think you love your dad? No, you want to castrate your dad. All those ways that those three guys kind of interpreted modern society. Um, Jung was not like that. Jung didn't suspect the world. He looked at the way the world was and he thought, well, I think we more or less understand how the world works. There's a, a famous episode in the life of Jung, where Jung and Freud went to New York together to do some lectures and to tour or whatever. And at that point, Jung was still a disciple of Freud. And Jung had a dream because he had a lot of, he was working through some major problems. He couldn't understand how the personal psyche connected to the vaster historical forces. It just looked, the Freud's model looked wonky to him. And he had this dream. And in this dream, he uh, was in his house, his own house, and had this Rococo kind of style of decor. And then he started going down to the lower level. And the lower level was more of like a 15th, 16th century kind of decor. And then he went down. It was in Roman times and finally went down to this crypt where he found these, these bones and two skulls. As psychoanalysts of the time did, they would always tell each other their dreams. He recounted his dream to Freud. And... Jung was like, what do you think it means? And Freud was like, well, uh, all that Freud wanted to talk about was a, the two skulls at the end. He's like, what, what are those skulls? And um, this is how Jung writes about it. He says, what chiefly interested Freud in this dream, this is from uh, Memories, Dreams, Reflections, Jung's autobiography. What chiefly interested Freud in this dream were the two skulls. He returned to them repeatedly and urged me to find a wish and connection with them. What did I think about these skulls? And whose were they? I knew perfectly well, of course, what he was driving at, that secret death wishes were concealed in the dream. And uh, Jung, because he wanted to please Freud, finally he said, well, I guess they were my mother and my sister-in-law. 
Uh, and Freud was like, aha. And Jung later remarks that he thinks that Freud was panicking because he thought that one of the skulls was Freud's skull, that, that mm. Jung had a death mm. wish against Freud because mm. uh, Freud was famously paranoid about Jung. And then later on, he says in the same section, he says, I was never able to agree with Freud that the dream, the dream in general, is a facade behind which its meaning lies hidden, a meaning already known but maliciously, so to speak, withheld from consciousness. To me, dreams are a part of nature, which harbors no intention to deceive, but expresses something as best it can, just as a plant grows or an animal seeks its food as best it can. These forms of life, too, have no wish to deceive our eyes, but we may deceive ourselves because our eyes are short-sighted. Or we hear amiss because our ears are rather deaf, but it is not our ears that wish to deceive us. Long before I met Freud, I regarded the unconscious and dreams, which are its direct exponents, as natural processes to which no arbitrariness can be attributed, and above all, no legerdemain. So... You can see a difference in attitude there. Oh, yeah. Whereas Jung was able to see, it's like, he's like, this dream is not just about skulls. It's about a house with multiple levels descending through time as you move through space, finally ending in a crypt with lots of bones and two skulls. All of that has to be taken into account to make sense of the dream. Whereas Freud's attitude was like, what are the skulls about? It's all about the end. It's all about the payoff. The money shot was the two skulls at the end. Who do you want to kill? So it's, it's a kind of a facile example, but it shows us a difference in attitude. Jung is much more pluralistic, yeah. a lot less monistic than Freud. Jung is much more open to multiple and conflicting interpretations. And Jung ultimately trusts that the way we in the West or in the East, you know, he's not like going to pick favorites, although he is a Westerner himself, that the way humans have evolved, we have evolved to perceive reality as it is. We haven't evolved to perceive the opposite of the real. And hmm. that's a huge difference between him and, and other psychoanalysts, yeah. like Freud or Lacan. Yeah. And Freud is dinged in this essay as a reductionist. And yeah. Jung, mm -hmm. <clears throat> I think what he does quite fair-mindedly, it show the limits of Freud's approach in the discussion of art. He says somewhere, I think at a couple of different places, it's not terribly useful to look at a work of art as a symptom of psychopathology. Right. But then he actually does sketch out situations where that would be appropriate. His pluralism is such that it certainly can embrace Freud's worldview or Freud's interpretations as perfectly valid in some cases, but what he doesn't accept is the idea of any interpretation being valid in all cases. And right. this becomes, I think, particularly important when we're talking about works of art, and specifically with works of art, that, yeah, that, becomes, that that becomes a difficult challenge to psychoanalytic theory because the work of art doesn't function in that way. It's not responsive to reduction. There's something about exactly. the work of art that is inherently pluralistic or pluralizing, perhaps. Yeah. So just for the listener, what Freud would do, um, and this is somewhat uncharitable, but essentially what he would do is he would take, for example, Leonardo da Vinci or Hamlet, and he would interpret it in such a way that the play or the painting or whatever it was he was looking at became a symptom of the pathology of the artist. So essentially what you get from analyzing art is the hangups and problems of the person who made it. 
Yeah. And Jung is not denying that that's possible. He's like, sure, you, you know, it's possible that maybe Shakespeare was gay and Hamlet's his alter ego and Hamlet is struggling with homosexuality. And that might be what Hamlet's about. That might be the case. You might make a solid argument, but you've said nothing about Hamlet. Yeah. You've only told me about Shakespeare. Mm-hmm. And he's saying there's an essential difference between the artist and the work of art. The work of art makes the artist, not the other way around. The work of art imposes itself, comes out of the artist and has to be assessed on its own terms. And he uses the word, uh, the phrase in terms of its meaning. So the work of art has to be detached from its determinant, which is the artist. In this essay, the artist becomes strangely invisible or so passive as to be almost uninvolved Mm -hmm. in what art is. Almost more Um, like a medium, like somebody who's channeling something. He, he calls the artist a nutrient medium at one point. Yeah, yeah, that's right. stay for a second on the way that he encounters Freudian reductionism and indeed all forms of scientific reduction in Mm -hmm. the discussion of art. The whole time I'm reading this, I'm like, you know, repeatedly he'll say, of course, nobody would say blah, 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 some ridiculously philistine thing about art. I'm like, oh, well, you didn't live in the United States in 2020, bro. <laughs> People say that shit all the time. Yeah, um, it's true. So he he had no idea the depths of barbarism to which we would stoop. But uh, what he says about a hypothetical Freudian reading of Plato's cave metaphor. Oh, yeah, it's a is, great It's so sweet. And you can apply it so easily to present day examples of similar kinds of reduction. Um, can you read that passage I'm, about Plato? Yeah, I'm gonna. If you have the Viking portable Jung. Edited by Joseph Campbell. It's a good collection. It's a very good collection. Begins on page 306 at the bottom. In the short space of a lecture, I cannot, of course, enter into the details of Freud's technique. A few hints must suffice. And he goes into a thing where he talks about how, you know, characteristic disturbances of the conscious processes, neuroses, uh, can be reduced to repressed contents. 
And from this point of view, the dream is engage, always engaged in an act of leisure demand, exactly what Jung said that the unconscious is not about, that it's not about dissimulation, that the Freud idea, as he says, is that we have unacceptable thoughts that come from repressed sexual drives and our unconscious wants to communicate them but has to communicate them in disguised forms or coded forms. And so it's like a sensor. The mechanism that makes dreams so weird and hard to understand is a sensor. And Jung is not about that idea at all. He's like, no, the, the, the dreams are actually very... Uh, very honest, radically honest. They can't help but be honest. Um, so he says, the essential thing in Freud's reductive method is to collect all the clues pointing to the unconscious background. Neurotic things like, you know, your buddy who always is getting in a series of disastrous love affairs with women who look exactly like his mom. That would be like an right. example. Uh, and There's a place for that. And it there's does a, happen. You know, oh, yes. <laughs> I, I, I find myself talking about Freud all the time yeah. these days because uh, there's so much. It's, um, well, it's like, Marx, you don't have to be a Marxist to notice that, like, you know, look around America 2020 yeah, exactly. and be like, yeah, he kind of <laughs> called it, you know? Yeah, yeah. So I'll do credit. I'll do credit. But anyway, he says with Freud's method, you collect a clues in people's neurotic behavior and that points to the unconscious background. And then through the analysis and interpretation of this material, we reconstruct the elementary and sexual processes. These conscious contents, which give us a clue to the unconscious background, are incorrectly called symbols by Freud. And here, Jung is making a distinction between symbols and signs or symptoms, which I have a feeling we're going to return to. But I'm just going to touch on that now before going on and saying, uh, just to quote him, is saying that the true symbol differs essentially from a sign and should be understood as an expression of an intuitive idea that cannot yet be formulated in any other or better way. That seems to me key, that a symbol is not like a fucking rebus or puzzle in the Sunday newspaper where you have to put all the words in the proper order to understand the message. And he's saying there is no translation of the symbol. The symbol is pointing to a complex of meaning that is not otherwise apprehensible by our conscious it, minds. It's the best way of expressing that idea. Yes. Yeah. And his example is in Plato's metaphor of the cave. And he continues, when Plato, for instance, puts the whole problem of the theory of knowledge in his parable of the cave, or when Christ expresses the idea of the kingdom of heaven in parables, these are genuine and true symbols. That is, attempts to express something for which no verbal concept yet exists. If we were to interpret Plato's metaphor in Freudian terms, we would naturally arrive at the uterus and would have proved that even a mind like Plato's was still stuck on a primitive level of infantile sexuality. But we would have completely overlooked what Plato actually created out of the primitive determinants of his philosophical ideas. We would have missed the essential point and merely discovered that he had infantile sexual fantasies like any other mortal. Such a discovery could be of value only for a man who regarded Plato as superhuman and who can now state with satisfaction that Plato, too, was an ordinary human being. I'm going to stop here for a moment to point out that this reminds me of a passage from Nietzsche's On the Uses and Misuses of History for Life, which mm. we talked about in an earlier show. In that episode, we talked about Nietzsche's three kinds of history, monumental, antiquarian, and chocolate chip. I can't remember. What was the third Critical. One? Critical. Yes. Critical. And he was saying that... Um, chocolate chip. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Uh, and he was saying, and we were amplifying 
the idea that different kind of people need different kind of medicine. You can kind of think of these different moods of history as medicine for different kinds of temperament. You know, Nietzsche himself says that somebody who has been wounded by history needs to kind of get revenge on it through the critical method, through a hard, disillusioned, masters of suspicion kind of approach. But he says that each of these kinds of history grows best in its own soil and becomes a ravening weed when transplanted elsewhere. And so the critical faculty transplanted to a mind that maybe would be better suited to monumental or antiquarian history uh, becomes toxic. And correct. Th and yeah. this is something that I think Jung is saying when he says such a discovery that Plato, like any other human being, has infantile sexual fantasies. And he says that such a discovery could be of value only for a man who regarded Plato as superhuman. Yeah. You can say, what, what is the Freudian medicine good for? Well, if you hero worship these grand men of the Western art and Western philosophical tradition, such that they become your like action figures that you play with and, and you don't see them in their full rounded humanity, then yeah, it's probably good for you to knock them down a peg um, to break the spell of their godlike omniscience and omnipotence. Uh, and I feel like in, in the critical and reductionist method in the academic humanities became what it has become, partly because in the 1960s with the by then decades long droning gray hegemony of new criticism, people needed that kind of critical reassessment. People needed that harsh medicine to kind of mm -hmm. knock these figures down off their pedestal so we could see them in a more rounded way. You know, mm -hmm. it's good to remember that even Beethoven had nasty wet farts. Yeah. Even Jane Austen stank up the bathroom. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah. <laughs> so, so I think Jung is making a point that the value of these interpretive directions is, is, um, Relative. I mean, this is part of his pluralism. Use the right tool for the right job. Correct. Uh, uh, but he continues, who would want to regard Plato as a god? Well, I, I can think of a few. It's a special, something academics are particularly prone to, making gods or devils of the people that they study. And, and Jung turns it around. It's like, who would want to regard Plato as a god? Well, of course, um, a certain kind of imbalanced or one-sided academic for whom criticism would be good medicine. But then he subtly puts the, like sticks the knife in to the critical type, the critical sensibility by saying, surely the only person who would think such a thing is one who is dominated by infantile fantasies and therefore possesses a neurotic mentality. Yeah. For him, the reduction to common human truths is salutary on medical grounds, but this would have nothing whatever to do with the meaning of Plato's parable. And That's so he's what just I wanted to say. Yeah. It, yeah. It, it almost reminds me of like that scene in Raiders of the Lost Ark where that guy shows up with the two scimitars and is doing this flashy moves. Yeah. And then Indiana Jones just looks at him wearily and shoots him. Yeah. That's, that's kind of what's happening here. It's just like against all of the elaborate pretensions of critical reductionists, Jung just caps them by saying like, yeah, well, you know, if you're a kind of weak person who needs this kind of medicine, go nuts. But don't think for a second you've said anything illuminating about Plato's metaphor of the cave. Exactly. When you look at the narrative he builds there, you have Plato writing his allegory of the cave. Um. He doesn't call it an allegory. Jung would call it a symbol, but it's famously called the allegory of the cave. So the symbol of the cave, 
you have a person who venerates Plato and sees it, the, the allegory of the cave as some kind of revelation. So an allegory in the true sense of giving him a codified kind of like solid answer to the nature of reality. And then you have Freud coming in, pointing out that the cave is actually a, a sign, a symbol essentially in Freudian language for the womb and that Plato is just enacting an infantile fantasy. And then you have the worshiper of Plato finally being brought down to reality. None of this has anything to do with the with the, the story <laughs> that uh, Plato has put down on paper. Yeah. Everyone's just dancing around the object. And that's one of the first points that uh, Jung makes. He's like, when we do the psychology of art, we must be cautious. We must be wary of the temptation to reduce art to psychology so that the art disappears into psychology and even warns his colleagues. He's like, rest assured, one day soon, it would be very easy to subsume psychology in neuroscience, which is precisely what has happened. Yeah. So he's like, don't subsume things in other things. If you're going to do the psychology of art, you're going to be doing psychology. It has nothing to do with the essential nature of art. And you can see that pluralistic attitude come back when he talks about the work of art as a completely self-subsistent, independent entity that you can't just reduce to the artist or reduce to some historical force or reduce to anything. It has to be taken on its own terms. There's a long kind of a short disquisition in this uh, essay about the importance of not reducing objects to their determinants, right? That once something has become what he calls differentiated, once a work of art has emerged and once art in the wider sense has come into the human story, you can't just reduce it back to what caused it. When you do that, you're not solving the problem of art. You are circumventing art altogether and talking about other stuff. And yeah, then pretending the that you've you're changing the subject. And he criticizes the scientific attitude in this sense. Um, let me just find it. I have it in my notes. He talks about the difference between science, the scientific attitude and the artistic attitude. And he says, a scientific attitude will always tend to overlook the peculiar nature of more differentiated states in favor of their causal derivation and will endeavor to subordinate them to a general but more elementary principle. That's what science does well. It takes things and reduces them to a kind of their elementary principle. Mm -hmm. Whereas the artistic attitude approaches things as whole, as independent, as autonomous, and they have to be assessed on their own terms. Like it's in Reclaiming Art, like science always looks for the general and art always looks to the specific. So that's a difference between like a diagram of sunflowers in a book of botany and Van Gogh sunflowers. Van Gogh sunflowers are singularities, whereas the botany illustration, although very beautiful and very artful, is an attempt to draw out the general from all these specific yeah. examples. So yeah. he's saying when we talk about art, we have to adopt that attitude that art warrants, that art calls for, which is an attitude that's geared towards the singular, the unique, the specific and it's only on that term. So when, when we engage in the kind of Freudian reduction of art to the pathology of the artist, it's not so much that we're doing some kind of injustice to the art, although we are, we're actually not talking about the art at all. And mm. that shifts his essay into a 
mode where it's not about artists. It's not the psychology of artists. It really is a psychology of the work of art. What is a work of art? And that's where he comes up with the idea. And he has a lot of vegetal metaphors, the work of art as a plant that grows yeah. in the psyche, as a kind of living force, a, a, a living thing that uses the artist as a medium. And Almost it's, like a parasite. Like a, yeah, like a parasite. Correct. Um, it, it, there's this great short passage where he spells it out. Um, he says, the unborn work of art in the psyche of the artist is a force of nature that achieves its end whether with tyrannical might or with the subtle cunning of nature herself, quite regardless of the personal fate of the man who is its vehicle. And a short survey of the history of art will bear that out. Artists often, not always, but often uh, suffer the consequences of their complete abandon, their complete devotion to their medium. And, and, and the reason that is, is because they are essentially people who are uh, possessed by these deep archetypal ideas that need to come out for historical yeah. reasons, for collective reasons, not for personal pathological reasons. And somehow they are chosen, quote unquote, to be the ones to bring this out. And when that symbol has been brought out in the work of art, the world is not the same as it was before. Something has changed cosmically in the makeup, not just of humanity, but of the universe itself. Something has been brought forth. Mm -hmm. But that's what a singularity means. A singularity is an event that has not just changes the being to which it happens, it's an event that changes the whole picture, that reconfigures the whole universe. And I'm going a little far here, but I'm trying to get to the heart of what Jung is getting at and, and the emphasis he puts on the importance of the work of art as coming before the artist. And uh, that's been something that we've talked about since the beginning of this show. And in a sense, this essay that we've never discussed has haunted this show um, yeah. right up until today. And there it is. Well, you know, actually, we could come up with a reading along the lines that we've just described as a Jungian approach. We can think of the shows that we've done, all 72 of them, this is number 73, as the working out of an idea that wanted to be expressed. And that idea that wanted to be expressed is this idea, yeah, or exactly. the idea contained in this essay. So I'm only exactly. reading this essay now. You know this essay from way back. I'm only reading it now. Mm -hmm. And yet I find that I have somehow grown perfectly to the point where I, I have fused with this essay. I, yeah. My ideas have merged with this essay I'm only now reading. Odd. Interesting kind of telos. Uh, yes. You know, that's a teleological way of thinking, I suppose. But that is, in fact, how you often end up thinking when you are creating art. We talked about this with James Curcio. Yeah, and he, he he's, he's he strongly agreed with that. He view. strongly agreed, despite his you know affinities, his personal philosophical affinity. He's he's a really intelligent and deep thinker. Um, he realizes that some of these ancient ideas, like telos, for example, which is basically taboo in modern academia um, yeah. is kind of needed. You kind of need it to make sense of what you're doing if you're a creative person of any sort. Yeah. And thank, thank God, like Jung allows you to think teleologically. You know, Jung's entire system is teleological, if we can call yeah. it a system. Well, you know, one of many ways in which he is doing that thing that I said, he's making the modern world safe for the esoteric tradition, finding ways of bringing these ideas back in ways that don't sound completely batshit insane. Yeah. Yeah. And it would be hard to quantify the influence he's exerted on the way we think, um, even in the quarters where you wouldn't expect it. Um, you know, I'm also a big fan of Gilles Deleuze, as everybody knows. And, and uh, 
it was uh, Christian Kerslake and also and then Joshua Ramey. They both wrote books explaining to what extent Deleuze was drawing clandestinely on Jung. There was a time where Paul Ricard was in a conference and someone asked him, he, Paul Ricard was a French, a more conservative, but very modern kind of French thinker. He's the guy who coined the term masters of suspicion, I he, believe. He was indeed, yeah. He's written phenomenal books on evil and on history. And uh, he's uh, essentially a phenomenologist, a hermeneutics kind of guy. But he was at a conference and expounding on some theory of his. And somebody pointed out, I was like, isn't that Carl Jung? Have you read Carl Jung? And he's like, I haven't read Jung. Jung's on the index, making a reference to the famous Vatican index of books you can't read. And But he meant the index of the French academic establishment. Yeah. So yeah. that's how uh, poo-pooed Jung has been. Um, oh, yeah. Yeah, no, Lionel Snell in his marvelous book, My Years of Magical Thinking, talking about the development of his theory of magic talking about how an early review of it was like, oh dear, I realized that I was in for a rough time when I saw Jung mentioned on page yeah. six or whatever. That's a very typical reaction. Mm -hmm. So as much as Jung has actually done a lot to bring back esoteric ideas in a relatively accessible and non-threatening way, there's still plenty of people who know exactly what he's up to and don't like it. Right. And, you know, those people are not wrong because he is, um, as Kingsley points out in Catafalque, Jung was indeed a kind of mystic. Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, that, that kind of dry uh, scientific language, which he so expertly, although if you look closely, de like deceptively and trickily used to write his text, because one of the problems with Jung and, and one of the reasons why we've had to resort to kind of oversimplifications is because the meaning of his terms changes from essay to essay. Archetype means several different things, depending on which text you're reading. He's very mercurial in his way of thinking. Mm. This is all, mm. of course, deliberate. And Kingsley explains how it's all rooted in his belief that his job was to give the modern away, to give modernity away to articulate ideas that were not modern. He was trying to bring the yeah. dead back into, like, as he thought, we've severed our connection to the dead, to our past. We must reestablish this connection unless we're doomed. So when Jung saw things in his life, like the First World War, which he foresaw in dreams, or when he saw Hiroshima, or when he saw, like, uh, the, 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 the travails of the 60s or whatever, he interpreted these things as signs that we had still not reestablished our connection with the dead in the West. And our connection with the dead means bringing back that which has been lost, bringing it back. It's a trope that's not from science fiction, but from fantasy. Some things have been lost and must be remembered, right? So, yeah. he, And that goes against the grain of modern thinking, of course. Well, because yeah, modern thinking because it's a, all about progress into the future and the, and the past is only viewed as the uh, mm -hmm. imperfect first draft of where we are now. Correct. Whereas uh, Jung thought that the past had much to disclose to us. And as uh, Faulkner says, the past isn't, isn't over. Uh, no, was it, the past isn't... He, he says, said the past isn't dead. It's not even the past. Right. It's, that's it. I was mistaking it with a Paul Thomas Anderson quote from Magnolia where he says the the past isn't through with us yet or something like that, which I like that. That's a good way of phrasing but it. The, the, the point being that... Um, Jung was a mystic. And if you read the Red Book, it's a completely different tone. There he really just dives into that rhetoric, occult rhetoric, hardcore. Yeah. But, but he hid that book. He never showed it to yeah. anyone but his closest associates and had it put in a safe. And it was yeah. only a generation later that scholars were finally able to 
And I get the impression that that was over the dead body of a number of his heirs who never wanted it released because they wanted to preserve the idea of Jung as this very sane scientist. But, you know, I respond to that because like as somebody who talks about these ideas in a refractory space, that is to say in academia, um, you do that all the time. You're like, okay, I'm going to talk about these things in terms that will be less threatening. I'm going to put this in terms that position it within a mainstream of academic thought. And we do that all the time on this show. And yet there's also like, you know, there's the unreleased conversations. Like when you and I are just having a friendly conversation and I can let my hair down and you know perfectly well that I'm actually batshit insane. I'm just very good at hiding that. Yeah. You're absolutely psychotic. Yeah. Yeah. Thank God Um, we can hide that. You're really good at hiding it. Daubing the walls with my excrement. (laughs) I can see the room. The the listeners can't see what the spectacle I'm seeing behind you right now. Yeah. (laughs) That's, that's, uh, I like that as a kind of comedy (laughs) setup, like a sketch comedy thing. The Zoom meeting where it shows somebody in a room that the walls have just been painted with his own feces. Yeah. It's like a torso. <laughs> <laughs> uh, um, no. yeah, yeah, so but no, so, but, but I, I mean, also, yeah. I, feel, I feel like, uh, you know, I don't want to bag on people whose audience is strictly practicing occultists or pagans or what have you. No flies on those people. But then there are also folks like Eric Davis and Joshua Ramey. And uh, you and me, and it's not sort of like arranging these ideas and trying to perfect them within their traditions. Like when I talk about Zen, for example, I'm not going into the fine distinctions of the Tathagata Garba theory of uh, storehouse Dharma or some shit like that, right? Right, right. I'm not getting into that means, but yeah, yeah, I'm not getting into the nerdy details of theology. I'm talking about it within a broader context in which it participates with ideas in the the Western tradition. Um, And uh, the other names I've mentioned are doing a similar thing. And when you do that, you're leaving some things off to one side. Some of the things that are a little wilder and woollier, but those things, they don't go away. They're still there and they have to be there. They nourish an authentic engagement with this stuff in the more intellectual or if you like scientific register that Jung is about. So like you wouldn't get the, on the, uh, what is this boring title? On the relation of analytical psychology to poetry. You wouldn't get that essay without the red book. Exactly. It it all comes from the red book because the red book is a record of a series of synchronistic, uh, basically of visions, series of visions that Jung had over a period of years, starting with a vision of apocalypse on the eve of the First World War. It bears repeating that very few people in Europe saw that war coming at all. Crowley had a vision, a similar vision, uh, yeah. just a few years before Jung. So the thing is that, yeah, he was a mystic, but he was he was using the language of our times to communicate something that belonged to the depths in, in every yeah. sense of that yeah. word. And therefore, by example, he's showing us the reality of the occult, of the reality of these spiritual dimensions and the reality of... He's, he's calling yeah. us, even his scientific language is a veiled revelation of his project of what's what one needs to do it's like yeah because you can't just start a cult he was like for example he didn't like rudolf steiner because he thought rudolf steiner would just hit the nail on the head too much 
He's yeah. like, at one point, I can't he remember went where right, it is. He just always, Steiner yeah. always goes right to the occult core. Right to the occult core. I, I think Jung said this somewhere. I can't remember where, but he's like, if I were to be honest, they could reject me and laugh me, basically chase me out of town, which would be bad enough. But worse, what would be worse, they could believe me. <laughs> <laughs> that's a really good, you know? that's a good line. And then, yeah. And then I'd be a cult leader. Um, and he didn't want that either. Ultimately, the message that Jung is giving us, and he, he gives it to us in this essay through the image of the artist. He's like, well, what is an artist doing? This emphasis on the singular and on the unique and on the uh, self-subsistent work as opposed to the kind of like um, reducible symptom. Um, all this points to uh, to Jung's, I guess we could call it Jung's politics, which is a politics of the flourishing of individuals. If there's one thing Jung believed, it's that a system of tyranny is composed of individuals who have given license to that system, who are somehow complicit. If people were to stand up and individuate, as he calls it, then they would become immune to those sinister forces that try to control our minds and bodies, right? Mm -hmm. Like that we yeah. each need to awaken, but we can't do that by taking on a guru, according to Jung. We must each descend into our depths and connect with our dead. You see, I just strongly, strongly resonate with that. That just yeah. seems to me to be profoundly true. Oh God, there's a book that he wrote called Civil... Um, I can't remember the title exactly. It's a short little uh, essay, basically where he lays out his political ideas and he's talking about the Eastern Bloc and and he comes down in favor of the West hardcore. And so for that reason, that puts him in a category with like Camus, people who are essentially left-wingers, but who were seen as kind of sellouts or traitors to the movement for a truly collectivized future of equality, because he was essentially condoning the Western industrial civilization. But the only reason he was doing that, and again, is this speaks to his capacity or his willingness to look at the world and trust the appearances, is that it's in the West that at that time during the Cold War, that a person is most able to flourish as a person, that can do their own thing. And if a society won't let people do their own thing, that's a huge problem. And yeah. you, he's like, I'm willing to live with a society with major issues but if it allows people to engage in this work and to become something of their own and to engage imaginally with the interior, which Marxism, by the way, denies even exists. There is no mm -hmm. imaginary yeah. interior. There is no imaginal. Right. It's worth it. It's worth living in a society that has major problems. And in fact, those problems can be solved by allowing people to individuate, to engage with the psyche on their own terms. And that's one of the reasons why he was so reluctant to turn his philosophy into a church. As he famously said, I'm glad I'm Jung and not a Jungian. You know? <laughs> yeah. So I've come back to Jung hardcore, like in the last couple of years. I'm a huge That's interesting. Fan. And I read him in the same sense that we, you know, we, we talk about William James, like he's our uncle, you know? For me, when I read Jung, I feel very, very close. It's one of those thinkers that I just feel very close to. I don't think he's... His his writings aren't gospel. There's a lot of stuff I struggle with and don't agree with. And you can see that he's it's a messy attempt at trying to do something that's really, really hard. His career was essentially a magical operation. He was trying to bring something back into the world. And he did it with all the clumsiness and stupidity that any human would manifest in, under the circumstances. Nevertheless, he allowed 
us to think thoughts that we hadn't been able to think for a long time. And yep. I don't think weird studies would exist if he hadn't done that. Nope. And that's just one little drop in an ocean of things that wouldn't exist without Jung. So, you know, let me tell you, he's a magician. And you know what kind of magician he is? What kind? He's a Modernomancer. This is a word <laughs> I made up. <laughs> And this is, I said this, I sent this to you once in an email, but this was ages ago. I was thinking about how magic was thinkable without too much difficulty in the Christian world uh, of the Middle Ages. You know, it was, I mean, magic was evil and dangerous, perhaps, but it was evil and dangerous precisely because people considered to be unproblematically real. And magic in the modern era, by contrast, is thinkable only with difficulty and. Indeed, that's kind of our show, trying to think things that are hard to think. And, you know, magic is hard to think. And I've been saying, you know, that one of the things Jung does is he gives us with the greatest of difficulty, but nevertheless, he manages it to give us a structure whereby we can think of magic as something that isn't just like insanity. But that's actually not the thing that I think is most impressive about Jung's accomplishment. He's sort of a, it's like necromancy, what he does is like necromancy structurally, by which I mean, okay, think about it. Necromancy is magic aimed at death. Everyone dies. There's nothing you can do about it. And therefore, to defeat death requires magic and magic of a peculiarly powerful kind. Now, modernity to us is about as powerful as death. It places an absolute limit on our functioning, on what we can think and how we can think it. And Jung knew this perfectly well. And so just as for the necromancer to defeat death requires necromatic magic, Jung to defeat modernity, or at least to defeat the baleful hold that modernity has on us, the ability, you know, for all of the great things we get from modernity, its ability to prevent us from thinking the things that we need to think in order to live fully realized lives. Uh, in order to defeat that, he needs to use the very powers of modernity itself, just as a necromancer uses the very power of death to defeat death. It's a homeopathic rather than allopathic approach. And you use modernity to create a space within modernity that's outside modernity. Necromancy is some spooky shit. Uh, it's an unlawful technique, right? Using modernity to defeat the baleful power of modernity is also, we also need an unlawful technique for liberation. Uh, we need a magic that aims squarely at the impossibility of its realization. And the necromancer gains power over death by a kind of commerce with it. He binds death in contract. Uh, he deals with it. He bargains with it. At any event, he doesn't simply submit to its will, and neither does he just pretend it isn't there. He presumes to meddle in death's affairs and is half in the realm of death himself. Uh, his powers are the powers of death, you know, arrogated perhaps illicitly by a mortal human. And my thought is that that's what a modernomancer is. He doesn't succumb to the modern and he at the same time isn't one of its appointed priests as Freud clearly was for Jung, a priest of the modern. And Jung doesn't want to wear that jacket. What Jung wants to do is to speak to those separated from us by the veil, not the veil of death, but a kind of epistemic veil that prevents us from thinking magic or thinking the esoteric. You know, the power of the Modernomancer is the power of modernity, but taken and used without sanction. 
the powers of modernity that Jung arrogated to himself are the powers of world building and world explaining, the power of enlightenment, but not used for the characteristic ends of capital E enlightenment, like Voltaire enlightenment, but a different kind of enlightenment, you know, awakening, the awakening of the human. Consider subscribing to Weird Studies on iTunes, Stitcher, or another podcast service. You can also follow us on Twitter or support us on Patreon. Music for the podcast is composed and performed by Pierre-Yves Martel. Thank you for listening.